0: You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Meir, on this Friday afternoon. And since it's Friday, it really is my favourite time of the week because I'd like to welcome back to the programme our wonderful co-host for the Agenda Cafe, Karen Ko. Karen, how are you doing?
1: Good. I'm great, Noreen. Happy Friday. It's great to be here again. And uh, we have a really interesting show today. Great guests
0: coming up as well. Let me just say that. Exactly.
1: Yes. If you're on Facebook, you can go to Facebook Live because we are uh, on camera as well as uh, live on the mics uh, for this program, which is kind of appropriate because... Today, we're talking about film and TV, and we're talking about both racial and gender diversity in film and TV. So, of course, although we couldn't watch it here in Hong Kong, everybody knows that Beijing born director Chloe Zhao made history on Monday by being the first Asian female to win uh, an Oscar for directing her film Nomad Land. And so, um, there's been a long build up to this it was not unexpected given that she'd won the golden globe and and there's been so much um news about about her movie but today we're going to broaden it out a little bit as well and sort of find out you know how significant is this what does it mean for the film industry for content creation does this mean we're going to see more diversity going forward and you know how is this how is this going to happen both on screen and off screen so we have two wonderful guests joining us to talk about this today Uh, We have Professor Gina Marchetti, and Gina is the director for the center of the study of globalization and cultures in the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of Hong Kong. And Gina teaches courses in film, gender and sexuality, critical theory and cultural studies. So this is right up her alley. So Gina, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. And we also have Dr. Jason Ko, who's assistant professor in the Academy of Film at Hong Kong Baptist University. So Jason, thank you for joining us too.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so let me just start with the very general audience question. Gina, maybe you wanna go first. What did you think, first of all, of the nominees for this year's, I guess, Film Awards season? And then of course, what did you think of the winners?
3: Oh, okay, that's a a good question. I thought, uh, as most people have pointed out, a, a very diverse year, I think an unusual year because of COVID. So many of the larger pictures were held back uh, and didn't get released so that it gave a lot of other people the opportunities to have their films looked at in a way perhaps they wouldn't have been looked at uh, in other years under other circumstances. So I think that that really opened the door to some of the uh, smaller pictures, more indie influenced or indie films more uh, in many ways, more political films in some ways. Um, so yeah, it was an unusual year. Uh, the winners I thought were pretty predictable. Um, also good in terms of uh, of historic wins, like Chloe Zhao's historic win. Uh, you know, only the second woman and the second Chinese American to win the award so it was clearly a historic win for her and she'd been sweeping the other uh big awards beginning with the golden lion and venice of course and golden globes and everything else so it wasn't a huge shock that nomad land did win as best picture as well um so yeah i think that that it was uh it was a year with historic low ratings for the oscars right and i don't know if that bodes well or ill i wanted to just say one thing as a teacher uh, i asked my students if they felt differently this year about the academy awards because of um the fact that they could see so many of the films on on netflix streaming many of the films were film set mank etc uh that people could see um ma rainey Uh, many of these other films were Netflix films and easily accessible and others were on other streaming services. And they said yes, that part of the reason they were very disappointed that Hong Kong had decided not to pick up the Oscar show this year was the fact that they had seen so many of the films. They'd seen more of the films than they would in a normal year. So that's another way it was unusual. And perhaps the industry is not taking advantage of the advantages of streaming for the awards ceremony. I mean, I think that Netflix, for example, could have pushed the fact that these were films that were up for awards and that they could have worked with the broadcaster, I believe it was ABC, uh, to push for more uh, viewership based on be sure to see these films, be sure you see Mank and Ma Rainey, you know, root for the Netflix <laughs> Features, you know, et cetera. I think they could have done a lot more in terms of some kind of uh, convergence between the streaming services and the broadcast and the academy itself.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting, but
3: I was just thinking, uh, I didn't see all of the
1: films, but most of the ones I did see were on streaming services, including Nomadland. So it's definitely a, a, a new shift to the way people can access them. Um, Jason, what are your thoughts about both the nominees, the range of um, films that we saw, and also the winners?
2: Well, I think that it definitely speaks to you might see is like a sea change in you know what's popular um i think that the millennial generation and also the kind of online community has exerted its influence you know and obviously hollywood is listening you know um and it's uh it's not just about how much these films how many of the films are representative of you know uh, minorities or you know uh women or you know um you know uh Different sexuality, for example, but it's also that these films are making money, and um, there's sort of something going on where the kind of popularity of films that are not, you know, part of this kind of um, normative kind of white Hollywood kind of expectation that they're making money, and so you know you're you're getting this kind of change happening slowly, I would say, with Oscars as well, and these kind of Academy Award seasons where the Academy is finally responding. To you know the kind of uh, marketplace. Um, at the same time, um, because it is, in my mind at least, very much an economic market-driven kind of uh, kind of uh, phenomenon, then I don't know if it's necessarily sort of positive for you know our cultural politics. Like uh, just because we get a film that has an Asian American in the lead or a Chinese American wins uh, wins an award, I don't know if that necessarily means that America is a less racist place or a more egalitarian place. Or if it demonstrates that people who are maybe more uh, favorable to these kind of political uh, kind of viewpoints or wanting to see these kinds of perspectives have more money or more say or more ability to affect the marketplace. And the Oscars are going to you know, need to. They have to. Right. They have to adjust to that or else they're going to get left behind, (laughs) you know, it'll be, you know, something where people don't care about it anymore. So uh, that's kind of how I see the way things are going right now. And I think Gina makes a really good point that, yeah, the streaming is a big part of it, you know, and streaming is uh, what's really kind of um, amazing about streaming is that because there's a sort of very clear link between the viewer on one end who clicks on the films that they want to see as opposed to what they can watch at the multiplex then they get to make kind of more active decisions about it so um i think that this is not i think that this is kind of a trend that's going to continue
3: could i add on to that a little bit because uh, uh jason made a good point about box office box office was less influential because of COVID. Yeah. So, this move away from the box office to looking at streaming and statistics that are sometimes rather difficult to get from many streaming services in terms of how exactly how many people are clicking on those films. They, of course, know, but they don't share the same way that box office figures are shared um, in the industry. So, that's also going to be a point going forward in terms of uh, how much influence the marketplace has on the Academy. In terms of who knows what about the success or lack thereof of certain features.
1: I mean, as as more production also moves out of that sort of Hollywood ecosystem, um, you know, does that change the way Hollywood itself works? For example, like a lot of the films as we saw were were either made by Netflix or Amazon Studios Mm -hmm. or other um, production companies. So are they, you know, they're participating in the awards, they're winning on the playing field that's the same with Hollywood studios. Um, so, do they have enough influence to change the way the traditional sort of Hollywood model works?
3: Would you like me to start? take a stab yeah. at that? I'll, I'll start with yeah, because Gina? Hollywood has been changing for decades. And the way that we think of, like, if we, if we watch Meg, and we think, oh, that's the way Hollywood works <laughs> you know it's like no we don't have studios anymore no we don't have these kinds of uh, you know huge influences by these individuals in who work together on lots and all that kind of stuff with contract players and all that sort of thing. Hollywood has not operated that way for a long time but Hollywood is still very um, uh, monopolistic in many respects even though there was you know huge anti monopoly. Uh, clawback in the late 40s, uh, Hollywood is still very much influenced by money and by certain companies that are now uh, transnational in nature. So yeah, money rules, but the way money rules is different. And this is is something that you've seen with the rise of uh, film festivals like Sundance and the Mm -hmm. rise of independent production and changes that have been going on for a few decades now, for about 30 years now. In terms of allowing different voices, allowing more uh, women and more ethnic minority voices and more people to come in. I also can't overstate because obviously I'm a film teacher. So I'm going to, I'm going to say it. And uh, Jason works at a big film academy. So I'm going to say it. Film schools have been a gateway Mm -hmm. for more and more successful directors than ever before. If you look at the fact Ang Lee and Chloe Zhao both went to NYU, Tisch School of the Arts, You're, you know that's just a, a couple of examples. Uh, Barry Jenkins went to uh, Florida State. You know, all of these people went to film schools, and some of them are rather new film schools, like Florida State. Arizona State just opened a film school uh, just a couple of weeks ago, announced it. So when you see people coming through, not just UCLA not just usc and not just because they have family contacts in the industry <laughs> as they did in the old days or not because they were you know proved themselves in broad in broadway or in another uh, arena but because they went to film school studied the art and then were able to bring together if you look at each director they they met the people that they continue to work with in film school mm. Yeah. So yeah. they're connected to each other because of film school. Hmm. So if you look at that, you know, even here in Hong Kong, obviously, Anne Hoi went to uh, London to go to film school. And these connections that come through are really important to these filmmakers in this current generation. This is the film school generation. And it's beyond the quote unquote film brats of the 1970s who also went to film school, but they tend to go to film school in california only now people are coming from different places in the u.s and bringing with them a different aesthetic sensibility
0: yeah, jason. and as a
3: result people like chloe Zhao are really making an impact um because they can draw on these connections and and hollywood's changing as a result
0: yeah jason
2: yeah i i just want to add on to that because um You know we're talking about the way that the oscars kind of reflect these kind of changes in the filmmaking industry and one of the kind of cliches that people have said about the academy awards is that the winner of best picture is usually has something to do with hollywood it's usually about hollywood in some way and you know um as someone who's an ang lee scholar i've always been very disappointed that his films have never won best picture and a lot of times it's because they ran up against films that were really much about hollywood right but then you know nomadland you know as an allegory you might say of you know transnational business practices demonstrates how these kind of you know if you live in one place like empire you know uh that's the town where chloe uh the fern character originally is from That the town has failed right that's kind of like a big studio failing you know all the people associated with the studio have failed and now as an independent contractor you need to go from place to place to place and in a very funny way the way that Jean is talking about it Nomadland is a story about Hollywood in the 21st century where the big studios are falling you're an independent and you are now a nomad you move from place to place to place so in an interesting way you can see this as Nomadland one best picture if you follow that allegory argument about it being about Hollywood because it reflects the industrial kind of um Hollywood filmmaking system in place today where you are a nomad you are an individual You know, but then you make connections along the way that allow you to keep working (laughs) like uh, the Fern character makes with, you know, Linda May, with Swanky, with, uh, you know, her. um, I forgot the boyfriend ish character. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's
2: a a really good observation. Yeah,
0: that's Um, a really good allegory. Yeah, yeah,
1: it is. is. So, so, you know, one of the things that's that um, I'm wondering about, which Gina, you you kind of. Bringing up the film school makes it interesting. Is that if you look at okay, so it was only 2016 when we had you know Oscars so white um, that whole movement. Since then, uh, we've had you know last year's Black Lives Matter movement, the Stop Asian Hate movement, um, and if you go back to the the USC Annenberg um, report by Media Diversity and Social Change Initiative that which was in 2015. Uh, where they did a whole survey of eight years of films over uh, the top 100 grossing domestic U.S. films each year, you know the numbers are pretty damning. It was it was say uh, of the 107 directors, 92.5% were male. Um, there was only one female composer, but 113 male composers across a sample of 100 movies in 2015. And the numbers just keep repeating themselves both on screen in terms of speaking parts for women, for people with disabilities, for, um, ethnic minorities. You know, it's like the, the, the white male is in 70 plus percent of everything and everyone else is, is in the minority of everything. Um, so as, the, we've had these cultural movements, which are very real. They're they're it's reflecting of of what's happening in society. Is Hollywood finally, and is this industry finally going to change? And of course, you know, the film school um, graduates will hopefully be a part of that. What do you think of that, Gina?
3: Uh, yeah, I think change is inevitable. Uh, I I I don't want to overstate the case for film school admissions <laughs> being the reason, but yeah, it is part of it. The film schools have had admissions policies that do reflect diversity in a way that is not reflected in Hollywood hiring practices, sadly enough, but will be. What's it like in
0: Hong from- Kong, Gina? Is it mostly female students? Do you get a mixture of male students? Um, what's the I- percentage like?
3: Okay. This is the thing. I teach in comparative literature, so I don't teach in a film school.
0: Sure.
3: So I yeah. have overwhelmingly female students. Yeah. And as you probably know, Anne Huy is our most famous graduate. And of course, he studied film in terms of the art form and in terms of its relationship to literature and culture, but not the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. So there are a lot of ways you can study film and then become a great filmmaker, as she did. Mm-hmm. Um and uh you know, you have to look at it that way as well. What is a film education and and what draws people to the medium? And what makes them realize that yes, they can work in the medium. And what is, what is it about their talent that they can express? Because film is a, a tricky art form because it is so collaborative.
0: Yeah.
3: And the trick is, is ha- learning to collaborate and learning how to express a personal vision. That's also a vision that can be communicated through a group production and then to audiences around the world. So to go back to Karen's question, I think a lot of the changes have to do, of course, with the global marketplace for the cinema, with the emergence of China as such an important market um, and such an unusual market in many ways for Hollywood filmmakers that they have been on the edges of their seats for a few decades now, trying to figure out how to break through the quotas, how to get to the audience in China with the only place where box office still really mattered last year, it was in China, where the cinemas opened very quickly after the initial lockdowns. So when you look at the Chinese box office, that's very important both there domestically as well as uh, for Hollywood filmmakers. You have to understand that there's a reason Chloe Zhao is making Eternals and that Kathy Yan has made uh, you know, the uh, films Also, based on uh, very popular uh, brands. She did Birds of Prey. So, you know, you have the Chinese American women who are emerging as forces in a genre that is notoriously male dominated the superhero comic strip genre.
0: Yeah, perhaps we'll take a quick break and we'll return to uh, more chats this afternoon with Professor Gina McKetty from the University of Hong Kong, along with Professor Jason Ko from the Hong Kong Baptist University, and Karen Ko uh, with us this Friday afternoon on the Agenda Cafe. A qu- right, welcome back to the 123 show with me, Noreen Meir, and Karen Ko this afternoon. Karen, it's great to see you on Facebook Live. Uh, we are live this afternoon, Noreen Meir on RTHK Radio 3. Can you see me?
1: Hey. Thanks, uh, Noreen. Yeah, so we are talking today about racial and gender diversity in uh, not just Hollywood, but in the film and TV industry generally, uh, with Professor Gina Marchetti, who is from the University of Hong Kong, and Dr. Jason Ko, who is from Hong Kong Baptist University. So, Gina, you were talking about the huge golden prize of the China market, and it's very interesting that of course this week the world is celebrating Chloe Zhao's historic win while at the same time China is kind of trying to cancel her you know she doesn't exist in in domestic Chinese media if if you were to be there you would have no idea that she she won anything so how do you reconcile that first of all maybe for listeners who don't know you can give us a bit of the backstory for that and then how how do you reconcile that especially since as you've mentioned she's um she's directing the the disney superhero movie which presumably they will want to have distributed in china definitely
3: yeah they definitely will will be disappointed if it's not distributed in china um I think also, you know, you can contrast, I I will give the background on her case first, and then I'll contrast what's going on with her with another person who's also uh, on the internet a lot in China, and that's Louis Fei, who's been quite controversial as well. And Mulan, of course, was up for an Oscar, did not win. Uh, And Louis Fei was Mulan in that film. So you're looking at uh, obviously many cases of Hollywood cultivating uh, Chinese and Chinese American talent, in order to try to, to create a bridge between uh, its industry and the Chinese people and the market there. So that's important. So they are looking for talent for people who are Chinese speaking, who know the Chinese audiences, who are able to communicate. So that's something that's part of the background. Uh, in terms of Chloe Zhao, she made an off-the-cuff remark. Uh, she as uh, for people who don't know about her, she uh, was born in Beijing, is the daughter of a, of a well-to-do industrialist there. Uh, her stepmother is a very well-known comedian who was often on kind of the popular New Year's show, television shows in the mainland, so people know her, Sung Dan Dan. Uh They have a close relationship, so she's a well-connected person. Uh, but a few years ago, she made an off-the-cuff remark about China being a country filled with lies. She doesn't say anything beyond that. She doesn't say anything about politics. She doesn't say anything. In fact, she's very careful about politics. She has a BA in political science from Mount Holyoke. She went to school in the U.S. as well as boarding school in the U.K. Uh, before going to film school. So she knows about politics and she's extremely careful. She was later misquoted by the Australian press and saying something like China's not my country when really she said America is not my country. You know? You know, so she's been misquoted. She often speaks fondly of China, and very warmly of her father, her stepmother, and talks about her background quite freely. So it's she not like she. spoke Mandarin
0: too- on the stage in her acceptance speech in the she, Oscar, and that's I've never heard Mandarin did. spoken on the stage at the Oscars. In an
3: acceptance she did, speech. didn't she? Yes. She did. I don't even think Ang Lee did that. Did she? did he, Jason? Jason knows a lot about Ang Lee. Yes. But she, she did. She said, you know, she gave a famous uh, what they call the three-character essay speech. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, it's not like she's divorcing herself from her background. So that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, she's, you know, the films that she makes are very careful. None of them have anything to say directly about China at all. So she's been very careful. And I think that's part of the reason why she was hired to do The Eternals. Uh, now, unfortunately, in the uh, Internet, in the in the great uh, cyberspace in which we all dwell, uh, somebody reminded the world of her, you know, comment on lies on China and lies from years ago. And that that opened the floodgate for a lot of uh, uh, nasty remarks earlier than that. I mean, when and this happened fairly recently after the, global, uh, the Golden Globes went. Uh, before that, people were saying, oh, isn't this a great film? No Man Land's a great film. I hope people can see it in China because it illustrates how bad things are economically in America. Hmm. And the film is obviously critical of America so you know there's no reason really unless you dig a little bit deeper to look at parallels between the economy in america and the economy in china and look at you know the what's off screen in the film but if you're looking just at what's on screen and if people in china saw it she said that i want she said when she made the film i wanted to make a film that people in china could relate to she's very big on humanism she wants the film to you know touch people in a universal way and the film is very much about personal loss uh loss of uh you know in the case fern loses her husband loses her home loses her job uh loses a lot of her old life and has resilience it's this kind of story of resilience and kind of the human spirit that you can see appealing to people in china in a certain way even though it's not a you know big budget movie what have you so I'm sure she had that in mind. In fact, she talks about it in an interview. so I know she had that in mind when she made the film that she didn't want anything too specifically American. She didn't want it to be about Amazon labor issues. She didn't want it to be about, you know the fact that uh, you know people in America when they're aging cannot get the health care they need because of the way that you know uh, the medical system works there until they're eligible when they're older for Medicare. So, you know these kinds of things. She didn't want it to be about the specifics of American politics. People don't talk about Trump. People don't talk about the Republican Party. People don't talk about Democrats or Republicans or what have you. It's very nonpartisan in that way, and she was careful, you With, know. And she knows what she was doing. And she did it because she wanted to address. It opened in Venice, for goodness' sake. People in Venice are not that interested in the details necessarily of American political life, mm. you know. They want a story that they can relate to. It's a story about the devastation of the global economy, for sure. And we can all relate to that. Mm -hmm. But it's not specifically about the details Mm -hmm. of how that those processes, those economic processes, impact on people specifically in one place. It makes a universal story that people can relate to. And she understands that.
0: We've seen these comments, some of these comments from uh, Chinese netizens, from netizens. They're incredibly patriotic, you know, and what sorts of message does it send to future uh, Chinese directors, Chinese actors working overseas uh, that, you know, you, you really can't piss China off because this is what happens? W- w- I mean, w- what sorts of an atmosphere does that send to other other Chinese directors or actors, Gina? Yeah,
3: let me just say one thing, too, because I brought up Louis fei uh, Louis Faye, as everyone might remember, was, uh, you know, starring in Mulan when the protests happened in Hong Kong. And she right. right away said, you know, I am against the demonstrators. I can't believe that they are against the Chinese flag. I'm a Chinese flag bearer, etc. Now, she's a U.S. citizen. And she came out and said that. And I think that she felt she had to say that. Now, Chloé Zhao has never done that. Chloé Zhao has never come out to condemn anybody in terms of their political views. She's very guarded. And maybe it's gotten to the point where you can't be even guarded anymore. You can't say nothing. You have to be you have to come out and be a flag waver for China in order to uh, not get canceled, as you say. Now, she hasn't been completely canceled. People are talking about her in guarded ways. You know, they use kind of different sorts of handles to talk about the film and to talk about her and to move around the the, mech, the mechanics of the censorship mechanism uh, across the the firewall. So, they pe- people are talking about her and in positive ways and negative ways, what have you. There is chatter, but there is very little in terms of official statements. The official statements have been extremely condescending and mainly in English. Hmm, and these have been statements such as, you know, she's immature, <laughs> infantilizing her as oftentimes, you know, paternalistic voices from the state infantilizing women. I Very found good. that, you know, particularly <laughs> <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> but then you, put, uh, but then you to got say that she's immature as a filmmaker and maybe she'll learn to, to you know, grow into being someone worthy of you know support from the Chinese state I don't
0: know yeah so while you've got Liu Fei who's the actress in Mulan who's you know become popular in China she's less popular in Hong Kong you know because of her comments so there are people calling for boycotting M- Mulan and the same goes for perhaps someone like Jackie Chan who was always okay. sort of in the 80s um, Hong Kong's uh, treasure you know his movies and yeah. then it only takes you know a few comments to make him uh, not very popular in Hong Kong he's, but he's, very popular in China yeah. so you You've got that as an actor, which market uh, do you prefer? And you have to choose. It's come to that, unfortunately, in the entertainment industry, hasn't it?
1: It's so easy to be cancelled now by anything you do or you don't do, right? It's almost like you've got to just pick one way and see what happens and hopefully it goes your way in that market that, that matters. Um, I wanted to pick up on another thing, which is is I kind of feel like is a trend because I've watched so much TV the past year and so many movies, is just this this trend of having so many more films uh, and TV series with very strong female characters, big and small screen. So. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, amazing. Malcolm and Marie with Zendaya, Promising Young Woman, Pieces of a Woman, This May Destroy You, Fleabag, Killing Eve, P Valley, Unorthodox, The Queen's Gambit. I watched all of them <laughs> and I did. You know, I just spent a lot of time. I was also in three week hotel quarantine, so that's another reason. Um, but it just struck me that there, there just seems to be so many more, um, uh, so much more content that features very strong female characters and what, I mean, maybe Jason, I'll ask you this since you're the only, you're not the female on the screen. What do you think this says about both, you know, content makers and, and audiences?
2: Um, so uh, as the token male <laughs> of, the, of this conversation, um, I, I think I can honestly say it's, well, the stories are good. They're interesting and they haven't been told before. You know, you want to get a different kind of story, you know, like everyone's seen the kind of underdog male, you know, who really was kind of blessed and was always going to make it anyway, versus a story like The Queen's Gambit, where it's like, not only is this about the challenge of coming from an underprivileged life, you know, lifestyle, but also challenging sexism, too. And I do believe that the general public is developing a different kind of understanding of oppression, which is that it's not just, you know, because you come from like uh, let's say you don't have as much money as your competitors, right? Which is a very common American story. But also that when your gender is different too that you're also crowded out and you're bullied as well. You know, and I think that there's more of an appetite for that type of, you know, drama about, you know learning more about the experiences of people who are different. But at the same time, I would also say that there's a market kind of force behind that too. It's that we all have an appetite for difference. When there's something that's exotic or different, you know, where you can learn something from it or that story, then that's bound to kind of gain more popularity because then you can start to identify and be like, oh, now I understand what it's like to be a woman. When it's like, oh, all you did was watch a Netflix movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm always caught in in two minds about this. On the one hand, it's like, yes, we do want these experiences on screen. At the same time, it's like, you know, whether or not that experience reflects, you know, a woman's experience or a gendered minority's, you know, experience, like, it doesn't really change the fact of, you know, racism in America, you know, and the problem I have with cancel culture is, yes, okay, that's great that you were able to get that movie off you know, Netflix or whatever, or get this movie on. But does that really change the actual politics of the situation? And, you know, I know earlier we were talking about China and we we're talking about Chloe Zhao, you know, and one of the things we talked about is, well, China is not going to have a conversation about Chloe Zhao unless they want to. Right. right? The government wants this to be an issue. They want that to be the talking point. They're, you know, they're, they're geniuses in terms of PR, really, mm-hmm. right? Because the more they talk about Chloe Zhao and what the government thinks about Chloe Zhao, then the less they talk about actual things like feminism and gender politics in the PRC. So entertainment becomes this place where we, we think that politics is happening, when in fact it kind of shows our helplessness too, you know. Well, and, you a, and, like-
1: is a bit yeah, of a ahead. distraction from then they don't have to talk about what's really happening in the country
2: I do but but there is a little girl out there who watches the queen's gambit and says i can play chess and that matters that's really important you know so that's why I'm always caught in two minds about this. Or a little you
0: know? girl watching the Oscars seeing Chloe Joe winning the award and thinking yes, I can do yeah. this too you know it's, it's all about representation and uh, Christy uh, in an email says great panel today thank you so much for talking about the stereotypes and racial diversity Hollywood definitely lacks Asian representations and it's quite upsetting you usually get the lanky geeky brainiac or the best friend <laughs> emo psychic um, and yet you never see Asians playing the main character. And even if you do, it's play on stereotypes and it's jokes about being Asian. Frankly, it's very, very cringy to watch and it's disappointing to see people never move past them. Uh, Them as the Asian ancient stereotypes that have been around since the 1800s. There's (laughs) so much more than just the stereotypes and producers, filmmakers shouldn't base a character's development or role entirely on one's nationality or race and directors should stop whitewashing characters and just cast Asian American actors to play Asians. It's not that hard. The news of Chloe Zhao's win is definitely worth celebrating, but we still have a long way to go. Thanks for reading my message. Have a great day. And that thought comes from Christy. Thank you very much indeed uh, for for, for your comment. Uh, You know, what comes to mind is perhaps something like Kim's Convenience, um, which, by the way, I I really enjoy watching and a friend of mine told me that on on his way back on a flight, he was on the way to the toilet and coming back... and. This was from the UK back to Hong Kong. On the way back from the washroom, he literally saw about half of the screens were people watching Kim's Convenience. It's very popular. It's very funny. But what about that point? You know, it's still um, a a TV sitcom, you know, based on people's stereotypes of Koreans, of Asians. You're still laughing at the accents, at, uh, you know, the things that they go through. If you take away the accent, if you take away those things... Is it still funny? Are you just laughing at Asians? Jason?
2: Um so I love Kim's Convenience.
0: <laughs> Me too. Uh, all <laughs> the
2: all the all the Philby TV we've talked about. I'm sorry but like Kim's Convenience is here. No man Land. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I you know and um I I I disagree with that that thesis, you know? I don't think Kim's Convenience is funny because of Korean accents and Korean accents don't really dominate the storylines, you know, you know, like Koreanness doesn't dominate. The fact is, is that the parents, you know, in the, in the show are, you know, immigrants from Korea. And yet really, I think the show is really about being Canadian. (laughs) That's what I think the show is, you know, it's really, you know, it really kind of typifies that sort of Canadian family, you know, where you have a bilingual family, which is a very Canadian thing, you know, and you have, you know, generational conflict, you know, and issues between a a father and a son, right, who, you know, this is my My male kind of mess, my token maleness coming out, but yeah, no, that's a very common thing, you know. And I don't, and I think that the under kind of lying drama of the film of the show is not about them being ethnically Korean as much as it is being ethnically Korean and Canadian in Canada at this time and running a small family business. What about something like Fresh
0: Off the Boat, for example? I mean, these Uh, are all playing on stereotypes of uh, of our. I mean, isn't that damaging in a way?
2: Ah. Okay, well, you know, okay. And this is, this, is a, this is an argument that, you know, I think a lot of people in Asian American studies have been having for like 30 years. It's like, every time you go on TV, you're representing your entire race, right? So you speak for everybody. And right now I'm speaking for all Asian Americans, right, on the show, right? and all men. <laughs> but, but one, that's entirely unfair, right? You can't have one person speak for everyone. And then a second thing, too, is like, you know, and I, I know that Christy, you know, if you're listening, I know that you can find it off- you, you find it offensive that the Asians who go on are like stereotypes. Right. But if you think about it, what is an Asian? Right. There's no there's no Asian language. right? There's no Asian look. Right. And so every time, you know, we are put into a TV show, we're expected to fit this mold that has been entirely created by Hollywood in the first place. What it means to be an Asian is largely kind of defined by entertainment. When in fact, if you wanted to be yourself then you wouldn't be an Asian, you'd be an ethnic Korean American. You would be a Taiwanese American, right? And you would speak Korean and you'd also speak English and you would deal with these kind of situations. So, you know, like um, how do you represent a group that is non-representable? And it's this kind of conundrum that you get put into. But at the same time, and this is the flip side to that, if you want to break into Hollywood and kind of make it, there needs to be a financial incentive for these studios and these television studios to put you on the show. There needs to be some kind of reason how they're gonna make money from it. And it's, you know, for me, the real issue is you can't judge, you, you can't kind of base your cultural politics on what you see on TV and film.
1: So what I think is interesting, Noreen, in both the shows you mentioned, and we see this in other places as well, is if you come from comedy, that is kind of a good place to start because you can make fun of your own, say, immigrant experience while still being able to relate to the audience of the place that you're in. So, for example, you know, if, if you're Jason, as you are Asian American, you know Chinese American, I'm Chinese Australian. I can relate to both the white Australian experience and the Chinese in Australia experience. And there, there's a very funny young comedian in in Melbourne called Aaron Chen. He's a stand-up comedian, and he talks about, you know, the thing about being Chinese is that everyone thinks you speak Chinese, and just all these assumptions that are made by Chinese people about other Chinese looking people, Mm. that as a Chinese person, I can relate to that because I had that experience, (laughs) but at the same time, he's teaching his white audience, this is what it's like to be Chinese in Australia. And and so, you know, there's a little bit of a, I hate to say educational role, but it kind of is, it's kind of, this is what it's like to be on this side of my skin living in this country. And when you when you look at uh, say say people who um, are ethnic minorities who've become stars, they've often come through comedy and humor because that's a way you get people comfortable with you and and being able to relate to your experience as a valid experience in, in that community. Um, I don't know whether Jason, do you have any thoughts on this?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think and I, I think what you make a really good point, right? Which is that. So much of being the, the Asian right, on a show is one, you don't want to reinforce stereotypes, but two, because no one knows who you are, you end up serving a pedagogical role where you're trying to educate and your audiences want to be educated in that way. And comedy oftentimes is one of the best ways to, crit- to critique society, but also kind of point a sort of light right, in a sort of ethics. It's funny, but comedy is ethical in an interesting way. But at the same time, I think that if you look at the history of ethnic kind of film and TV in America, for example, this is also true of African-American actors and actresses. I think that a lot of times many of them start off in comedy as well, and they serve a pedagogical role, which is I'm going to go on TV and I'm going to try very, very hard to negate these negative stereotypes that many of you have about being black for example, but at the same time, educate and demonstrate to you, one, that we're intelligent, obviously normal people, but two, at the same time that, you know, there are things to learn and that we can be funny and interesting. And once you become associated with that, you become a certain brand, right, that they can grow. So we talked about Fresh Off the Boat before, but I think that the best, the most analogous kind of show to Fresh Off the Boat is actually Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with Will Smith. Mm, right. Which right. is really about someone who comes from a community, mm. gets displaced into this weird place where these people are black, but at the same time trying to fit into this white society. And it's like, how can your blackness meld with this? Right. But that but the fact that this type of storyline has been going on, not just for black Americans, but also for Jewish Americans in the entertainment industry has been going on for, you know, 100 years. Right. So this is a story of American assimilation you know, which is, and I guess I'm Australian as well, is one, we're not that different and we're also funny and you can learn something from us and then let us be your superhero, right? (laughs) But it's a slow progression.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then you, you know, because very often Asian culture in Western countries, um, the admired parts of Asian culture are the superheroes, the anime, the um, martial arts, Right, which do feed into the stereotypes that Hollywood perpetuates. So this uh, comedy kind of allows you to just be yourself, you know, to be the average person on the street and to uh, get people to know you. And by the same token, you know, today, technology is kind of playing the same role because people can, can go on YouTube and, and make films about themselves or their friends. They can become an Instagram TV star. They can become a TikTok TV star. and become influential Um, and sometimes profitable so I think that's also a, a new kind of mode so, which maybe will sh- shift the way that that people see minorities I, I, I got one people...
0: I got one thing to, to, to say and that is chat show hosts in America every time they well not every time but a lot of them say Jimmy Fallon for example when he has an Asian guest on the program he'll always ask them so what do your parents think of you being an actor or being in Hollywood <laughs> if I hear that question one way because again that is the stereotype of Asian <laughs> parents not wanting your Children to go into film or acting—that happens a lot, doesn't it? What's with that, um Gina? You, you were laughing just now. Have you heard that that question being asked so many times? When, say, yeah. uh, Crazy Rich Asians, when the anybody, um yeah, when Gemma, for example, the, the, the Gemma Chan who plays Astrid—you know, she went to Oxford, she's you know got a law degree—and people will often say, "What do your parents make of you being an actress?"
3: Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with obviously perpetuating some of these stories that are being told in the community. That <laughs>
0: Asians films. are nerds or the, something like that.
3: Well, no, I mean, you know, as you were saying, I mean, you know, the convenience store and all of the, and the films about crazy rich Asians are all about family and, you know, they're not about the loner on the street. Usually, I mean, a, you, you'll have to go to kind of Asian American film uh, indies to really get stories about the loner if you look at you know broad strokes of entertainment in america and you look at the ways in which the asian characters are positioned their stories about family even if they're stories that deal with you know um being gay you know the uh, wedding banquet it was about family as it was as much about being gay and if you contrast that with stories that are made by other ethnic groups you'll see a very different kind of story so when you look at the stories and then you look at the people making the stories these questions come up i also feel that there's a a big difference between being black and being jewish in the entertainment industry and between being european and being asian in the entertainment industry and racism is the big barrier and that, yes, indeed, people get asked different questions because of their race or their, eth- or, you know, their ethnic groups. Uh, and that there are barriers to assimilation in America and in Australia and in Canada, if you're not white, that have to be reckoned with. And I think Jason made that point and Karen made that point really well. So these stories are likely going to be different, you know, uh, for people because of the fact that, you know, we live in a segregated society, you know, sad to say. So that's the. Like, I wanted to just make one point though in terms of comedy and the range of comedies that come up because I think that one thing that might be a, a, a highlight of things that I've been looking at is a film by Alice Wu, another Chinese American woman that's also streaming called The Half of It which is a romantic comedy featuring a uh, young lesbian Chinese-American living out in the sticks in a small town in America. And I think it's a very charming film. It's quite different than some of the other films that you've been talking about or the sitcoms we've been talking about.
0: Yeah, Mm. well, fantastic. I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, We've only got a minute left, Karen.
3: Okay, real
1: quick one is the money going to follow to make content by more diverse content makers quick 30 seconds